the talk this evening, I'd like, if I may, to give you a little bit of a guided tour through some of the forms that we adopt and use here on retreat. First of all, I'd like to say that this is a very ordinary practice. You know, sometimes people might say to you that it's a little bit of a strange thing to do to go on retreat, a little bit out of the usual, maybe even a little bit weird. But actually, there's probably nothing more ordinary in our lives than to be awake. It strikes me that other things are extraordinary. This is an ordinary practice. This practice is not intended to be a springboard to something else. It's not intended to be a springboard to having some kind of transcendental experience. Not a springboard to a different dimension. This practice is not a way of leaving our bodies. It's not a way of getting out of our minds. It's not a practice that is intended to take us to somewhere else. You'll notice that the Zafus at IMS do not come equipped with wheels. It is intended to keep us here. In this mind, this body, these feelings... This moment, I think at times we can get frustrated with the ordinariness of this practice. We think, well, I could do something really exciting spiritually. You know, I could go somewhere and have an enlightenment experience or, you know, learn how to levitate or, you know, learn how to travel to different realms. Why am I doing this? This body, this mind, these feelings, this world, this moment. It is where this practice is rooted. This practice is never separate from all of that. Just as we are never separate from all of this. From this body, this mind, these feelings, this world, this moment. It is why, in many ways, the very ordinary the ordinariness of this practice actually makes it so powerful. Because we are never separate from everything that this practice is concerned with, can never separate ourselves from this moment, this body, this mind, these feelings, then we are in the presence of a continuous invitation to be awake. We're in the presence of that. It is what makes this practice very powerful. The deepening, the understanding, the spaciousness, the peace that is discovered in the midst of what we are, of who we are, of what we are experiencing. All of these understandings, this peace, this calm, this compassion, 
Rooted in who we are is also something that can never be taken away from us. I do feel that we come to a place in meditation where we really begin to understand that so much of the magic of this practice is all about learning how to see the special, the mysterious, the unique in the very ordinary and how to see the very ordinary in the special and the mysterious. As we go through our days here, our meditations, our sittings, our walkings, there are times when it's possible to lose sight of what we're actually doing. And in those times when we lose sight of what we're doing or lose a sense of vision of what we're doing, we sometimes face ourselves asking this question, you know, what is the point of all of this? What is it really all about? And we may find ourselves wondering, wondering even how this practice or how a retreat is going to bring about change or how it's going to bring us closer to what we're looking for or hoping for. These questions of what am I doing here, they are experienced by people who begin on their first retreat. They're also experienced the same questions by people who have vast experience of meditation. I think it is probably safe to say that very few people begin to meditate simply out of curiosity. For many people to be in this space and in this journey is a very fundamental, sometimes the most fundamental part of their being and lives. For some people to be on a retreat, it means to be in a sanctuary. It is a refuge, sometimes a very much needed refuge, where we can look anew at who we are, at what we value, at what we honor. Some people come to a retreat because it is a lifeline, because they're in a place of crisis in their lives, a place of conflict, and need to recover a sense of space and clarity and understanding. Some people come to retreat because they are looking for change, looking for some way to bring about an end to confusion, to conflict. Sometimes people come because they've tried a lot of other things and still find themselves falling in the same holes and the same cracks in their lives and are looking or come with an understanding of the need for some new perspectives, some new ways of seeing. Some people come to retreats as a response to their own heart's longing for peace, for compassion, for freedom. Sometimes the longings or the questions that bring us to retreat are very embryonic. They're hardly even articulated. And for some people, the motivations that bring them to retreats are very, very clearly formed. There is a validity in appreciating that 
there's a certain level of expectation that is in this path very realistic. I don't think hardly anyone ever comes to retreat because they want to stay the same um, or because they want to, you know, yet another more intimate encounter with their chaotic mind or, you know, their confused feelings. Most of us have within us, I think it is, it is part of doing a retreat, some aspiration for change and for transformation. And that aspiration is actually very, very important. Um, to have a sense of vision, to have a sense of direction, to have a sense of possibility. Actually, that vision provides a context and provides a container for all of the experiences that we go through on a retreat. In other traditions, apart, you know, other traditions than this one, you might actually be instructed to, to spend many months, perhaps even years, cultivating that sense of aspiration and vision before you were even um, given any kind of instruction on how to practice. Because that sense of aspiration or vision or direction in the practice, what it can offer, what we are seeking for, the possibilities that may be available, they are actually the basis for faith, they're the basis for perseverance, they're the basis for, for confidence, the basis for commitment. All qualities which are very clearly needed as we go through a journey which is sometimes rocky, which is sometimes difficult, which is sometimes challenging. The sense of aspiration that is, I think, part of our being here is looking for a way or looking for a path that leads us from a place in our lives or in ourselves in which we are not totally happy or content to a place that in our lives and in ourselves that seems to offer a greater sense of contentment, happiness, and freedom. This sense of aspiration could be called a quality of divine discontent. And it is important. It is an important part of this transition. Sometimes that very aspiration, the seeking for change, the seeking for peace, is actually what brings us here, what gets us here on retreat. And yet we can forget it also very quickly. Because when we begin to sit and walk, when we begin to practice, we are faced with two realities, two actualities. One of the realities that we are faced with is, of course, the, the rhythm and the content and the dynamics of our inner world. Everything we brought with us, everything that seems to make up who we are. The other reality that we are faced with, of course, is the actual discipline and practice and the forms of a retreat. And it is very often happens that when we are faced with these two realities, which often turn out to be a little different than we expected, 
that when we are faced with these two different realities, the mind frequently starts to go through periods of doubt, doubts that arise, questions that arise. It's not always, for example, very easy to see the meaning of what we're doing. It's not always easy to see perhaps the value of, you know, sitting through sleepiness when you could go for a nap or, you know, sitting with a sore knee when you could, you know, go take a shower. It's not easy to see the reason or the meaning in sitting with a, you know, a mind of trying to to kind of restrain a mind that's flip-flopping around when actually it, it seems kind of attractive to go off into one juicy fantasy or another. On another level, it at times appears that the forms and the practices that we're engaging in here feel inadequate. At times there's this feeling that they may be inadequate to to really answer and to respond to the very profound questions or longings that actually brought us on retreat. To put it simply, sometimes it's hard to understand or how watching our breath or walking slowly or eating mindfully or not talking, how any of this is going to bring about any kind of radical life transformations or earth-shaking revelations. Firstly, I'd like to say that there is nothing intrinsically spiritual about, I would say, any of the practices or forms or disciplines that we use here. There is nothing that is intrinsically um, spiritual about paying attention to your breath. You know, otherwise everyone in the world with respiratory problems would be enlightened, clearly. There's nothing intrinsically spiritual about going slowly or being mindful of how our bodies move. Otherwise there'd be a whole criminal fraternity um, of muggers and burglars, you know, who would be sitting in their cells, you know, experiencing altered states of consciousness. There's nothing intrinsically spiritual necessarily in itself about simplicity. Otherwise, the poor in our world would be far happier. One can also see, you know, we we talk about the value of silence, the preciousness of silence. But quite frankly, for someone with antisocial tendencies, you know, it's, it's totally a haven of avoidance. There's nothing intrinsically spiritual about following a schedule, um, you know, for someone who's a control addict. To follow a schedule is, is you know, a totally delightful thing to do. What is it then, it's a reasonable question, what is it then that makes this path or any of these disciplines a path of understanding or a path of transformation? What is it that makes any of these disciplines or forms uh, vehicles that can lead to profound understanding and open-heartedness? Clearly, it is not the forms alone. 
What does allow for transformation, what does allow for understanding, for wisdom, for compassion, lies for, far more in the qualities of investigation, the qualities of questioning, of seeing clearly that we bring to these forms and disciplines. It is the inner qualities that we bring to these forms and disciplines of the willingness to learn, the willingness to see that allows them to be transformative. It is also true that our way of learning in this path is different than our normal way of learning, which involves logic and evaluation and comparison, And there is nothing, actually, that is logical about meditation. Our way of learning here is through openness, through trust, through the capacity to rest in not knowing. In fact, our way of learning here is actually triggered much more by our capacity to restrain and to withdraw our usual inclinations to draw conclusions, to compare one moment to the next, to measure. All of those tools of knowing are actually not necessarily so valid in this path. One of the most important aspects of learning here, which is actually incredibly important, is to accept, as I mentioned yesterday evening, that we do not have a different mind or feeling or personality that emerges only on retreats. Everything that happens here Every change you go through, every way of opening, every way of closing down, every way of being generous, every way of engaging in resistance or avoidance, this is a microcosm of your life. It is a microcosmic view of your life. Meditation cannot be taken out of our lives. It is about our lives. And the forms and the practices that we use here serve endlessly as mirrors for us. They are mirrors that show us to ourselves. They are mirrors, the forms and the practices, in which we are reflected. Now the mirrors of the different forms that we use here They are actually without judgment. They have no judgment involved. They are always present. And yet, in a real way, these mirrors of our different forms and practices are also essentially neutral. But they become alive. You know, the practice, the silence, the mindfulness, the schedule, in many ways, all of these forms become alive and vital to us. They become our teachers through our own willingness to see deeply and to see beneath the forms, to see the lessons that are offered to us through the forms and through our intention to understand. 
I could never, never overstress the significance of clear intention in deepening in meditation practice. You know, intention, our own intentionality, our own clear intention, is actually what brings life to everything that we do here. And we can see that so clearly. You know, you can, we could turn up and just kind of sit down on our cushion and, you know, sort of live in hope that something may occur. Or we could turn up and sit down on our cushion and, um, you know, play through our, our fondest fantasies. Or we can sit up, turn up and sit down on our cushion with the intention to be free. Now, your experience is going to be very different. Your experience is going to be very, very different. You know, we can go out and do a walking meditation and kind of march around the grounds, you know, and rearrange the landscaping. Or we can go out and do a walking meditation with the intention to simplify, to be present in our bodies, to connect with the earth. Our experience is going to be very different. And the very, of course, very significant thing in all of this is that no one can actually provide us with clear intention. You know, this is not something that can be given to us. Clear intention is something actually that is fostered inwardly through our own sense of what we are devoted to and what we are dedicated to and through being clear about that. And through being clear inwardly of what we are devoted to and dedicated to in our lives, that clarity then is embodied in clear intention. And clear intention is primary in this experience. It allows us to learn it brings meaning and life to all that we do. We are not here to become perfect breathers, to be experts in slow walking, or to be obedient to a schedule. We are here on a retreat in order to understand what it means to be free. And that understanding does not involve a leap to some other dimension, or nor is that understanding necessarily born of having some special esoteric experience. We are here to understand what it means to be (coughs) and to find freedom in all of these forms that we use here. Just as we are asked to find what it means to be free in all of the forms in our lives. You know, forms are part of our lives. We have the form of being a mother, the form of being a daughter or a son. We have the form of being an employer, an employee. We have, you know, the form of being a friend. Our lives are filled with different forms, one form after another. These forms that we have in our lives communicate different things. Sometimes the forms that we have in our lives are a way of communicating to other people and to the world around us what it is that we value, what it is that we are committed to. No matter, sometimes our forms feel like they are adopted because they somehow are thrust upon us. But forms will always be part of our lives. And it is so crucial 
that we understand what it means to be free in all of those forms, rather than feeling that freedom comes somehow as, as a result of separating ourselves from forms. So this is the challenge in the invitation of the forms of this retreat. And I'd like to look at some of those forms a little bit more as we began to look at them yesterday evening and what they reveal and what they can offer. Now yesterday evening we introduced um, that very fundamental part of a retreat of the ethical guidelines or the precepts. Last year in England, we offered a one-week retreat on the precepts. And interesting enough, nobody signed up, which made me think that either the Sangha in England was incredibly ethically advanced, (laughs) or else, which is probably more likely, the, the feeling that very often we have that The precepts are kind of a piece of information that we pick up and that we know about and we do our best with, but somehow that it's not the real stuff. The Buddha once said that wise attention is built upon goodness of heart. That wise attention is built upon goodness of heart. And upon wise attention is built profound and liberating wisdom. It is like a building that has its foundations upon which everything else rests. Now, there is no meditative or spiritual path, actually, which is ethically neutral. This is not an ethically neutral path. There there is a basic teaching which underlies this path, which is about honoring life, which is about respecting life which is about seeing what is true in all of life, which is about protecting and cherishing and fostering well-being in all things. The reason why the precepts are given such attention in this tradition as in other traditions is simply because without the precepts in our lives, there cannot be a real sense of ease or happiness. I'll tell you a story. Many years ago when I uh, lived in India, I joined together with some people on a retreat for a a five-month period, a very small group of people. And about halfway through that retreat, some money went missing, um, which was quite a seemingly quite a traumatic thing, you know, that in this very small community that this money would suddenly go missing. And it was spoken about and everybody said they knew nothing about it, about how it had gone missing. So it was just, you know, it was just let go of, you know, that was accepted that everyone had been as truthful as they could be in that environment. And it was really, I think, pretty well for everybody, quite forgotten about. Ten years later, somebody came to me to tell me that they had taken the money and to tell me that they had never had one moment of real peace since they took the money and so that they needed to come and tell me so that they could really, really let it go. 
And this is a kind of extreme example, but I think we know in our own lives when we speak hurtfully or when we speak harshly or with unkindness, when we act in a way which is somehow separate and contrary to what we honor, that there is this residue that we are left with, this residue of unease, the residue sometimes of regret, sometimes a residue of, of guilt, sometimes a residue of fear. So the precepts are actually an invitation to harmony. They're an invitation to well-being, an invitation to being at ease with ourselves and fearless in our world. They're, I think, a very challenging invitation. I know we think, oh, I know about the precepts, but the precepts actually is an ongoing invitation to us that asks us again and again in our lives to let go, to let go. It is interesting, you know, recently I've been doing a, a sutra study group with a group of people, and we keep encountering this word in, in Buddhist sutras, abandon, abandon. The abandon the um, unskillful and the unwholesome. And it seems like it's such a strong word, you know, you think well, abandon, you know, like it doesn't talk about sort of gradually working something out or, you know, <laughs> gradually working through the unwholesome or the unskillful. Again, again, it just says abandon it, you know. And it kind of, I find myself keep reflecting on that word. You know, abandon doesn't have to have this implication that it has in our culture of abandonment, you know, and being left uh, neglected and rejected. I think really the way it is really used in, Buddhist, in the Buddhist tradition is that if you see something that is unwholesome and unskillful, that no matter how much you kind of may feel yourself tempted to ignore that seeing or to ignore that understanding, come back and abandon it because it is really what is you are doing in that letting go is treasuring your well-being and treasuring the well-being of your world. <coughs> it is a challenge. I think it's a challenging invitation. The, the, the precepts actually challenge us and invite us to let go again and again and again of heedlessness, of anger, of fear, of division, of craving. Ab- invite us to abandon, to let go of so many of the thoughts and feelings that it is so easy for us to harbor or to indulge in. You know, think of it here. You know, I mean, you may very well, I haven't spoken to you yet, be a very much a, a kind of very pure and uplifted group. But I know it often does happen on retreats, you know, that once and again, now and again, you know, these little thoughts creep in, you know, somebody really bugs you, somebody really annoys you, you know. It's a way of eating somebody has. It's, you know, seems totally mindless to you or... You know, there's all that, you know, everybody actually, almost everybody finds uh, an opponent in this camp. Um, If not yet, they'll probably come, you know. And how easy it is in those moments just to take even almost a kind of a quiet delight in feeling sort of self-righteous or, you know, uh, more pure or more mindful 
than our neighbor is. Abandon, to learn how to let go, to learn how to protect our well-being, protect the well-being of, of our world, of others. It is why, like in many of the, much of the monastic tradition, for many of the monks and nuns, what their practice is, is actually the precepts. It's nothing else. Quite a few more than we have here, I might mention. I do have 237, um, you know, which adds up to a lot of, a lot of watching. Um, but that is actually the practice. There isn't another practice. Because it is almost like the precepts and the ethical guidelines again and again are challenging the holding of self. Challenging the holding of self. The Buddha once spoke about the precepts as being the embodiment of loving kindness, our way of smiling upon the world and upon ourselves. And he also said that to live in a way against the precepts is like living with a very hot coal in your shoe. Another one of the forms that we use here, another one of the forms is actually, and the mirrors that we use here, is the form and the mirror of the schedule. Now, I know for people who are new on retreats, sometimes the schedule is, it feels a little surprising, you know. Uh, they look, and it, they look again, and they look again, and again, and again. And it's, it seems to be a source of endless fascination. Um, I can actually assure you that from tomorrow, for the rest of the retreat, there won't be any changes in the schedule. Um, so, you know, that might be a relief. You don't have to keep checking and seeing, is it going to change? You know, like there's, no, there's no time allowed for spacing out, no time allowed for, uh, you know, doing something different. There's no breaks scheduled, uh, no optional periods. You know, there's just more of that sitting, more of that walking, more of that sitting, more of that walking. And it's not an accident. It's not an accident. There is nothing that is actually suggested through this particular form except to be mindful, to submerge ourselves in awareness, to dive deeply into awareness, to strip ourselves of all of our props all of our ways of being in control and in charge, and simply to surrender into awareness. Sometimes we have problems with this. And so, again, the schedule actually acts as a mirror for ourselves. For one person, you know, they find themselves being totally obedient to the schedule, you know, as a kind of way of conformity, a way of being a good yogi, you know, a way of being diligent. You know, they'll be the first in the hall and the last to bed. Another person, you know, takes the opposite attack. You know, they're the rebel of the group. Um, you know, everybody sits, they walk. Everybody walks, they sit, you know, and it becomes a whole kind of enactment of the every rebellion against authority they've ever had. For more people, the position of the negotiator is a popular position. 
um, sometimes called the middle path, <laughs> and that I am going to negotiate with this, you know, and they strike up their own deals with it, you know, that, oh, yes, well, I'll do that sitting and that walking as a reward, I'll take a nap. You know, or I'll sit for that long without moving, and then because I've done so well, I'll move three times, you know. And the, this kind of negotiation that is going on. We see the way that we dance in relationship to that form, and that is what is important, to see the way that we dance, whether it's a dance of resistance, whether it's a dance of submission, whether it's a dance of negotiation. Who is doing it and why? Who is doing it and why? These are the important questions. How do we profit from the dances that we are in? You know, if we're caught in the dance of resistance, how do we actually feel that we are profiting from that? If we engage in the dance of rebellion, how do we feel that we are actually, what do we feel that we're gaining? What do we feel that we're profiting from that? If we're caught in the dance of negotiation, what do we feel that we are gaining? Often what we feel that we are gaining is safety. I'm being safe. I'm, I'm creating my haven, my sanctuary, my way of being here. What would it actually mean, you know? And no one here is going to go ever and drag you out of your room or drag you onto a cushion. We, we don't take registration, you know. This is your journey. This is your journey. And there are important questions we really need to ask on it. And sometimes, I must say, there is something truly remarkable about using this form as a, of the schedule truly as an invitation to surrender control, to surrender being in charge, to simply open to discovering what happens when we submerge ourselves in awareness, when we simply submerge ourselves in wakefulness. See the ways, see the times. As a mirror, see the times. You jump away from the schedule. Where are you going? Where are you going? Yeah. Sometimes we're looking for a different kind of refuge, seeking to find refuge in a fantasy, seeking to find refuge in avoidance, seeking to find refuge in distractedness, and unfortunately, it's really hard to get away from yourself. You know, you keep following yourself around. You know, so every time you jump away from the schedule, often we're jumping, trying to jump away from ourselves. It is good to question where we're jumping to and why, where we want to be, you know, sometimes we see this inclination to jump away as if attention is something that is painful. If you reflect upon your life and the moments when you've been truly joyful, the moments of greatest happiness in your life, the moments of greatest sensitivity, 
If you reflect upon your life and think of the moments when you've been most deeply connected with another person, with nature, with yourself, what is the common theme of those moments? You've been there. You've been there wholeheartedly. You have been attentive. Attention is a powerful catalyst for opening, for being touched. And yet in so many ways, our mind is trying to convince us so frequently that it's more fun not to be attentive. You know? All the kind of, you know, the, the daydreams, the fantasies, the planning, the imagining, the kind of endless thinking that can go on. Almost as if we are trying to believe that this is some sort of refuge or some sort of joy. Actually, you do it often enough here and you begin to really experience how painful it is to be disconnected and begin to really sense how much joy and happiness actually lies in being connected. Sometimes um, meditation practice or the process of a retreat is likened to the experience of lighting a fire. You know, that when you first want to light a fire for the warmth and for the light that it brings, well, what happens when you first start to light the fire is first you get a lot of smoke. It gets in your eyes, it makes you cry, it makes you uncomfortable. And yet as you keep tending to the fire, you know, blowing upon it, tending to it, the smoke begins to clear. And everything that you were looking for in it, the warmth and the light begins to be revealed. This is also true of practice. Another of the forms that we use here is the mirror of silence. Silence is intended to be a place of revelation, a place of seeing and learning, just as it is intended to be a way of honoring each other. There's a line, a poem, and a line in it that says that the greatest bond that can ever be between two people is that they respect the solitude of one another. Silence is an invitation to come closer to the place within ourselves from which all words are born. We know very well in our lives that our words can connect us and they can separate us. Our words can be vehicles of kindness and vehicles of cruelty. Our speaking can be ways of seeking reassurance and identity, just as speaking can be a way of offering gifts of generosity. Before all of our words, there are thoughts Before all of our thoughts, there are feelings. Before all of our feelings, there is consciousness. And at the very bedrock, the very foundation of consciousness, there is stillness. When we are endlessly caught in the words of our lives, we very rarely notice the thoughts and the feelings and the stillness that precedes them. Our words are ways often, again, of finding safety. By being able to say, I know, I know you, I know myself, I know how things are. 
We feel reassured. We feel safer. It doesn't necessarily mean that as we stop speaking, we surrender that need to be in control and in charge. We surrender our verbal silence, and you probably noticed today there's a lot of words around. We start talking to ourselves. We shout at ourselves. We praise ourselves. We blame ourselves. We shout at the world. We praise the world. We blame the world. We are endlessly saying to the world, I know you. Notice how in the day we are so often guided through the day by the chatter of our minds as we walk outside, as we pass other people. And uh, you know how much of that world is actually saying to us, please give me a name. But no, it doesn't. But we have a name, for it seems, for all things. The constant commentary. Sometimes as we let go of our verbal words, it reveals how subtly we rely upon our words words to actually have that, to be in possession of that sense of knowing, of feeling familiarity, of feeling safe. But our words describe the appearance of things. Our words describe the appearance of ourselves. Our words are sometimes burdened by associations, by memories, by wants, by aversions. And silence invites us to dive beneath this world of appearances. It is why it's called noble silence, because it is a way of coming to what is before the words, the thoughts, the feelings, the consciousness, the stillness, and to cultivate in that a profound sense of not knowing. Again, one of the mirrors we spoke about yesterday evening was the mirror of simplicity. And this is so central to this tradition. This tradition is founded upon the story of one person who went from home into homelessness. The story of Siddhartha, who left behind him the world of comfort and ease and position and identity to go into a world which was not known to him. The real central theme, the primary theme of that story is that going forth into what is not known. And that is why we use simplicity here on a retreat. It's not an accident that we don't have paintings all over the walls and books to read and movies to watch here. We are cultivating that sense of not knowing, stripping ourselves bare of all that we have gathered in our lives so that we can know the simplicity of opening to what is the good, the bad, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the delightful and the challenging, to be here with this, not to fix it, not to make it perfect, but to be awake. And this is the simplicity of having nowhere to hide, of resting upon nothing. 
You know, I think sometimes when, you know, you hear a lot of stories about Asia and India and Thailand, and sometimes, you know, teachers come here and they tell you all these very romantic stories, you know, of living in the jungle, you know, and living in these huts. And I think sometimes mostly we tell these stories when we haven't been to Asia for about 20 years. The truth is, I mean, the truth certainly of my experience of practicing in Asia was um, not always romantic, you know. I mean, I have very clear memories of being in a monastery where the monk next door kept his radio at full blast, you know, and then, you know, you'd think you'd get an hour quiet and suddenly there'd be a wedding and you'd get dragged out of your hut to go to the wedding, you know, and the wedding would be over and suddenly they'd start giving the the daily discourse for three hours in Thai over the PA system, you know, and that would end and you'd think, oh gosh, now I've got time to sit. And there'd be a tour group visiting the monastery and your door would get flung open and, you know, all these visitors would come to gawk at you and giggle at this spectacle of a Westerner trying to get enlightened. And it wasn't actually all that romantic much at the time, I can tell you. What was interesting about it is that because uh, there was so little to hold on to and so little to rely upon that actually if you really wanted to meditate there, you really had to try hard, you know, and you really had to make tremendous effort. And I actually see that that was the virtue (laughs) of being in a monastery is that you had to make so much effort. Um... And, and to accept never knowing what the next moment was going to bring. And that was true in so many ways, you know. I mean, often the food was terrible. <laughs> you know, there were millions of mosquitoes, the occasional snake, you know. I mean, there was just actually nowhere to hide. It wasn't that romantic. Um, and what was really important in that there being nowhere to hide was that coming back to find refuge in the moment to find refuge in just being and certainly never to find refuge in trying to make my world perfect so I could meditate. You know, in Asia, this was a hopeless possibility. You could never make your world perfect in order to be at peace, which made, of course, made me very much ask the question, was does my world have to be perfect in order for me to be at peace? And this is a good question for us to ask here. You know, because you can see the mind, you know, the little dance it goes through, you know, the never-enough mind, the never-satisfied mind, you know. If only I had a different sitting neighbor, you know, or a different roommate, or if only I had more food or less food, if I had more sleep or less sleep, you know, um... If I had this kind of experience and not that one, then I would be happy. Then I would be at peace. And how often also the mind does its dance, you know, well, I just got to fix this. I just got to fix it and then I'm really going to be okay. You know, so we write our notes to the staff and, you know, we keep fixing it. It's, it's interesting, there's always one more thing to fix. And sometimes it's good to step back in a retreat, you know, when we're really busy kind of feeling, if, you know, entertaining those words of if only and should. 
to really ask ourselves, does our world have to be perfect for us to be at peace? Is this really what peace is dependent on? Is peace dependent upon being able to control, on having perfection? Or is peace really much more linked to our capacity to be with what is, as it is, to see clearly what is, as it is, without the extras of aversion or judgment or comparison or should. The last of the, uh, well, one of the last of the mirrors I want to talk about is the mirror of the practice, the mirror of mindfulness, the mirror of attentiveness, of learning to see so simply. One aspect of attentiveness is actually just learning to see things as they are. And that's really a challenge for us. We see how much we want to burden the way things are with our judgments or evaluations, how much aversion or hunger, anxiety is evoked by just being with what is. Wholeheartedly attentive means learning to let go so that the breath is just a breath, a thought is just a thought, a feeling is just a feeling, and a sound is just a sound. Learning to cultivate non-dwelling in our world, our world of body, mind, and feeling, our world of sights and sounds and touch and smell, learning to cultivate non-dwelling, There is no problem with what is. There are many problems with the world of shoulds. There are many problems with the world of images and preferences. All of these forms that we use in this retreat are vehicles that teach us how to let go, Encourage us again and again to rest in openness, to rest in wakefulness, to learn the art of allowing things to be as they are. Each time we return to one breath, to one step, to one moment, each time we return again and again and again, we are actually learning that lesson of letting go. We are learning how to let go. That's what it's all about. Now, sometimes I think, and I we, we think of an ideal meditation path, and we think, well, in an ideal meditation path, first I would have really well-established trust and confidence and faith and understanding and joy and equanimity, and then I'd let go. That's not the way it works here. The way it works here is that we are asked to let go in every moment. And out of that letting go, out of the faith and the trust that is involved in that letting go, there is born the faith and the confidence and the happiness and the peace. Learning to let go is a journey we make alone. No one can do it for us. No one can make it happen for us. It is a journey we learn to make alone. One time the Buddha was asked, 
What does it mean to be alone? And he answered, in not holding on to what has already gone by, not clinging to what is already finished, in not craving for what has yet to come, and in not clinging to anything in the present, then we are truly alone in its deepest sense of all one. No one begins this path as an expert. We are all learning the lessons of compassion, learning the lessons of wakefulness, learning the lessons of letting go. We are all learning the lessons of fostering clear intention. The forms that we use here on this retreat, they are vehicles for learning these lessons. They are mirrors for us, showing us the moment showing us ourselves and showing us a path to peace and to freedom. If we'd have just two minutes quietly together, we'll have a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.